My son Jeff, my son Jeff loves the Detroit Lions. Now, he doesn't just like the Lions, he loves the Detroit Lions. Like, I remember, like, as far back as when he was like three, four years old, he would be sitting in front of the TV watching Lions games. We'd often leave church on a Sunday morning and hurry home so that he could be in front of the TV for kickoff because Jeff loves the Lions. He is still watching and following the Lions at 23 years old. And if you know anything about the Lions (laughs) or the National Football League, you know that that's not such an easy thing to do. They are perennial losers. But it doesn't matter for Jeff. He loves the Lions. In fact, there was one time, he was about seven or eight years old, and my father-in-law decided to take us to a Lions versus Bears football game. Now, to be fair, for my father-in-law, it's called a Bears game. It's not called a Lions game. So he takes us to the game, and the game was at Soldier Field in Chicago, and it is, Soldier Field is a great place to watch a football game. And we're there, and we're at Soldier Field, and it's a Lions game, and it's Lions versus the Bears, and the Lions come out on fire. Everything is clicking for the Lions. And we're into the first quarter, and the Lions take an immediate lead, and, 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 and they begin to destroy the Chicago Bears. And my son is going crazy. He is eating it up. He is loving it. He is cheering his heart out, his little eight-year-old heart. He's cheering his heart out. He's going crazy because the Lions are winning. But there's a lot of Bears fans around us. And Bears fans are not typically the nicest fans. And they're not happy that the Bears are losing. And they're not happy that there's this little eight-year-old kid cheering for the Lions. And he is cheering and he is cheering like crazy until the fourth quarter. And then the wheels come off. And the Lions lose the, game, lose the lead and it is obvious that they are not going to win. They are going to lose this game. And I'm standing there, and at one point, I look down, and there's my eight-year-old son sitting in the seat, crying. It was heartbreaking. My eight-year-old son is so upset, he's so devastated that the lions are losing, that he's sitting in his seat, crying. And these Bears fans that aren't typically so nice, some of them start to try to console my eight-year-old son. And one of them says to him, hey, kid, don't worry. The lions are going to be good someday. (laughs) Now, we all know that that day has not yet come. (laughs) But it doesn't matter for Jeff. He loves the lions. You know why? Because he's a true follower. He is devoted. He is committed. He is passionate about the Detroit Lions. Me, on the other hand, I'm just a fan. I could take them or leave them. When they win, yep, they're my team. When they lose, not so much. But not Jeff. He's a true follower. He loves the Lions. There's a big difference between a follower and a fan. A true follower is devoted. 
A true follower is committed. A true follower is passionate. A true follower, it doesn't matter what the cost is. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what people think because they're following. A fan, a fan's just in it when the weather's fair. A fan is just in it when things are going well for themselves, when it makes them look good, when it makes them the topic of conversation. There's a big difference between a follower and a fan. This morning, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. And as we open up this Bible this morning, I want you to ask yourself, am I a follower or am I just a fan? And we're not talking about the Detroit Lions here. We're talking about something much more important. Take your Bibles, please. Open up to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one in front of you. In the rack in front of you, there should be a Bible. Grab one of those and follow along. We're going to be going through some of these verses in Mark chapter 11. In that Bible, it's found on page 823. And we are going to be looking primarily at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. But before we get to those verses, we got to look at a few things first. Last week, let's think about last week. Last week, we saw that Jesus and his disciples were on their way up to Jerusalem. And as they're walking towards Jerusalem, Jesus has some things he wants to share with his disciples. He's, gonna, he's telling them what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. And he also shares with them, he also tells them, hey, you, you're not supposed to abuse power like the rest of this world. You're in this world to love on others, to serve other people, to pursue God's will in taking care of other people. Then Jesus, at the end of chapter 10, he heals a blind man. Look at chapter 10, verse 52. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Jesus tells this man that he's free to go. Jesus heals him, so now the man who could not see now can see, and Jesus says, hey, go, take off, you can go. But the man doesn't go anywhere. He decides that he is going to follow Jesus. The text tells us that he followed Jesus. He chose to be a follower, not a fan. He chose to follow Jesus. And now we come to chapter 11. And at the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus is now entering into Jerusalem. Is Jesus going to find any followers in Jerusalem? At first, look, things look very promising. He enters Jerusalem to hundreds, maybe thousands of people cheering him. Look what it says in chapter 11, verse 9. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus enters Jerusalem to the cheers of hundreds, maybe thousands of people. They are celebrating Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's what we celebrate today as Palm Sunday. But are these people... Are these people really, truly followers? Luke gives us the answer. He has an interesting take on this story. He gives us the answer in his gospel. Look at this from Luke chapter 19. As he approached, that's Jesus, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, 
if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And then look at the last sentence. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Although they're all welcoming and cheering Jesus, he knows. He knows that they don't understand who he is. He knows that they don't understand what he has come to do. And he knows that they are not willing to follow him. They may be fans, but they are not followers. Now look at verse 11. Because verse 11 sets us up for what's about to happen in our main text this morning. Look at verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, this doesn't seem very significant. It almost seems like a throwaway verse, but it helps us understand what is coming. It actually tells us what Jesus came to do. It says he went into the temple and looked around. Now, I don't think that this is strong enough terminology. I think it should have said he went in the temple to inspect it, to check out what is happening. He's looking at all that is happening in the temple. Remember this, this is the temple. This is the heart of Jerusalem. It is the heart of the people of Israel. This is the place where God was supposed to be. This is the place where the people went to worship God. This is the center of everything. And Jesus goes here to inspect it, to find out what's happening. He looked around. He's looking for followers. And if there is any place where there should be followers, the followers should be in the temple. But he doesn't see any followers. And he doesn't like what he actually sees. Instead of followers, he sees injustice, exploitation, corruption, pride, and hypocrisy. He sees religious ceremonies being conducted without any true meaning, with any, without any heartfelt action. These people that are in the temple are in it for themselves and for their own self-interest. They are focused upon themselves. And when Jesus comes in, he doesn't like what he sees, but he doesn't say a word. He looks around. He leaves to come back to do something about it later. Now look at verse 12. Verse 12 is the next day. We see here how Jesus responds to the inspection of the night before. Now here in verses 12 through 25, we see that Mark uses another sandwich. Remember we said that a sandwich is a literary device that Mark uses. It's also called kind of technically an intercalation. And what Mark is doing here is he's taking, two, he's taking, he starts to tell a story, it's interrupted by a second episode, and then he goes back to the first story, a sandwich. And all three of the episodes that we are going to see are used to explain to us something very important. They're used to explain to us how we are to be true followers. So let's look what happens. Beginning Mark 11, beginning verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. 
When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now it's now the day after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples are now leaving Bethany to go back to Jerusalem. And on their way back into Jerusalem, Jesus, Jesus gets hungry. He's hungry. He wants some food. So he looks off into the distance and he sees a tree. He sees a fig tree that has leaves on it. And so he thinks naturally, well, I'm going to go to the fig tree and I'm going to get some figs to eat because I'm hungry. But when he gets to the tree, there are no figs on the tree. So he says to the tree, look, you don't have, you, he's kind of, you don't have any figs. So no more figs for you ever. Now to me, this kind of, this is, this kind of doesn't seem like Jesus. It, seems, it doesn't seem like how he typically acts. Because we see lots of miracles throughout the gospel. But this is, most of the miracles we see throughout the gospel are positive kind of miracles. This is a destructive miracle. He's telling this tree, you're never going to have figs again. Now he has one other destructive miracle in the gospel. And that's when he sends the pigs into the Sea of Galilee. But this destructive miracle has purpose. And we're going to get to the purpose in just a minute. But first I want to ask a question. Why in the world does he actually curse the tree? It kind of doesn't make sense. More specifically, why does he curse the fig tree when the fig tree isn't supposed to have figs on it anyway? It sounds, it sounds kind of petty. Is Jesus just ill-tempered here? Did he have a bad morning? Did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed? No. That's not what's happening here. There is an explanation. And we are told this is not the season for figs. But the key here is this is not the season for real figs. You see, real figs came later in the year. But there were also a form of figs that came when a fig tree first formed its leaves. And we can refer to them as prefigs. There's a more technical term, but I can't pronounce it. So when Jesus sees the leaves on the tree, he expects when he gets to that tree, he knows what season it is, but he expects when he gets to that tree that there are going to be pre-figs on the tree, pre-figs that he can actually eat. They're edible. They're not as good as regular figs, but they are edible. But when he gets to that tree, there are no fig trees. There are no, there are no figs. There are no pre-figs. And when Jesus sees that there are no pre-figs, he knows that there are never going to be any real figs. So now he uses this as an object lesson. The purpose is to set up and explain what is going to happen when he gets to the temple. You see, when he comes to this fig tree, he sees that the tree is full of leaves. It looks healthy and vibrant, but guess what? It's not. It has a lot of leaves, but it doesn't have any fruit. The tree is without fruit. So Jesus cursed the tree. And on the next day, we're going to see in just a minute, when he returns to the tree, when he and the disciples return to the tree, the tree is withered all the way down to the root. This tree is a perfect symbol for Israel, for Jerusalem, for the people in the temple, for all people who are not followers, for all people who claim to be in possession of so much, but in actuality have no fruit. 
maybe fans of God, but certainly not followers. And the encounter with the fig tree helps us understand what's going to happen in the temple. Remember, leaves, no fruit. Mark 11, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus came to the temple on Monday morning knowing exactly what he would find. Remember, he had just inspected it the night before. There appears to be a lot of leaves, but there is no fruit. So he knows there are no followers. So he comes back to do something about it. This Jesus, this Jesus is not the meek and mild Jesus. This is the Lion of Judah Jesus. He is upset. He is angry at what he sees. And look what he actually uses force. This is acts of violence that he uses to get rid of these people to overturn the tables. It says he's literally throwing people out of the temple. As an aside, can you imagine what his disciples are thinking as this is happening? Wow, we didn't know this guy had it in him. He's overthrowing tables. He is throwing people out of the temple. Now, when I look at this at first glance, it doesn't seem like what these people are doing is really that big of a deal. It doesn't seem all that bad. They seem to just be buying and selling to facilitate sacrifices. Some may even argue that they were performing a necessary service. But Jesus sees. Jesus sees what is really happening. He calls the place a den of thieves. Thieves hide in their den. Thieves lay waiting in their den to pounce on their victims. And that's what's happening here. And it's happening inside the temple. So Jesus does two things. First, he overthrows tables and drives out those who are taking advantage of the system, those who are robbing and stealing. You see, people were selling animals that were approved for sacrifice. They had an official approval. And it was hard to get animals that didn't have an official approval. And the system was set up that you could only use animals with official approval. So what would happen is, is if you wanted to buy, say you wanted to buy a dove outside of the temple, you could buy a dove outside the temple for, say, a dollar. But inside the temple, that same dove may have been selling for like $25. It's kind of like our airports today. Once you get through security, those prices are just jacked up. And what they're doing is they're taking advantage of the system because they know that you have to have an approved animal. So there's this crazy exorbitant markup that happens. And not only are they taking advantage of the exorbitant markup on the animals... There's also money changing going on. There's money exchanging. And what you have is people exchanging currencies because the Roman currency was not allowed to be used to purchase the animals for the sacrifice. So what the money changers would do is they would charge outlandish, outrageous exchange rates to get the money you needed to actually buy the animal. 
And not only that, the priests are taking part of the prophets themselves to line their own pockets. You see, what is happening here is wrong. What is happening here is a racket. And Jesus comes in and he sees it. And he calls it out and he says, this is just a den of thieves. So he comes in and he overturns the tables. And he throws them out. But there's a second thing that happens. And I think it's even more significant. Look what Mark says in verse 16. Jesus would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. The ESV translation of the Bible says Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus not only stopped the sale of these sacrifices, and he not only stopped the money changers, he actually stopped the sacrifices themselves. If nothing can be carried through the temple, that means that the animals that were to be used for sacrifices could not be carried through the temple. If you cannot carry the animal that needs to be used for your sacrifice through the temple, you do not have a sacrifice. Jesus stopped the selling, he stopped the money changing, and he actually stops the sacrifices that are happening in the temple that day. Jesus stops people from participating in Passover. Do you get what's happening? Do you get the symbolism that's happening? Do you get the importance of what's happening here? In just a few days, Jesus himself is going to become the final sacrifice for all who follow him, for the forgiveness of their sins. And he makes all the other sacrifices completely useless. These people at the temple were not followers of Jesus, but they all claimed to be fans of God, yet none of them really were. Yes, they had leaves, but there was no fruit, just like the fig tree. So Jesus did something about it. He cursed them. I know it's strong language, but he cursed them for their unbelief because they had nothing but leaves, no fruit. Now, interestingly, Jesus' actions that day seal his fate. Look at verses 18 and 19. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. They began to look for a way to kill him. It was arguably Jesus' stopping worship in the temple, which resulted in his death within the week. This gives me goosebumps. Do you get what's happening here? Jesus' condemnation of the people and his condemnation of the sacrificial system caused these people to get upset, so upset that they wanted to kill him, that they plot to kill him. And within the week, they have him hanging on a cross. And they think by putting him on that cross, they are going to get rid of him and deal with the problem. But actually, him going to the cross was God's plan all along. It is the ultimate sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. No sacrificial system before could ever compare. 
what they thought was an excellent plan was actually God's plan all along. That is amazing. The story continues. Jesus is now going to complete the sandwich. On their way back into Jerusalem the next morning, Jesus completes the explanation of all that has happened and he wants the disciples and each one of us to know what it truly means to be a follower. So he comes back to the fig tree. Beginning in verse 20. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Now, when I read this, I think that this is, this is pretty strange. They see the fig tree. Peter points it out and says, look, the fig tree, the one you cursed, it's withered. And Jesus' response is, have faith in God. That doesn't make sense to me. Have faith in God. Really? That's what he's saying? What in the world is happening? Is Jesus here giving us some kind of formula to perform miracles? Hey, have faith in God and you too can curse a fig tree? No, that's not what's happening here. We need to read this in the context of all that has just happened. The first visit to the fig tree and then the cleaning out of the temple. Here, Jesus is revealing to us the key to being a follower. Not a fan, a follower. A follower is a person who has faith in God. The people in the temple, the people that were there in the temple had lost their faith in God. They were cursed because they had lost this faith. Everything became about them. Everything became about what they were to do, what they were to receive, how they were going to experience things. All of the, all the inequities, all of the exploitation, the injustice, the corruption was all a means to line their pockets and to create and allow them to influence other people. So Jesus comes along and says, if you want to be a follower, have faith in God. And we look at that and we think to ourselves, really? It's that simple? It's that easy to be a follower? Have faith in God. Yes, it is that simple. Think about the statement, though. That statement is all-encompassing. If you actually have faith in God, think about how things change. If you are a follower and not a fan and you have faith in God, think about it for a minute. You see, we tend to live our lives and we look around and we like to think, well, I have faith in myself. I have faith that I can accomplish things. Or we think, well, I have faith in the other people around me and they can help me accomplish things. And Jesus says, no, have faith in God. Be devoted, be committed, be passionate about following God. Have faith in him. Because if you have faith in yourself, you are only going to do the things that you want to do. If you have faith in other people, you are only going to do the things that they want you to do. But if you have faith in God, you are going to be a person of obedience and you are going to do what God wants you to do, and you are going to be who God wants you to be. You are going to be a follower, not a fan. Amen. And when you do, when you have this faith in God, life flows from God, and you receive life from Him. Life that is full of purpose. Life that is full of meaning. Life that has value. 
This last week, I'm sure you guys saw the news. This celebrity chef, Anthony Bourdain, took his own life. Seemingly a person who has everything. A successful chef, successful TV shows, travels all over the world, eating the best food that the world has to offer, hanging out with pretty cool people, talking about life. Seemingly has everything. I saw some of his past quotes this past week. And there were a couple that stood out to me where Anthony talked about the longing that he had in his heart. A longing that had never, all the things he had done, all the people he knew, never fulfilled the longing that he had in his heart. And he called it kind of a a longing for home. He also talked about a lack of purpose, a lack of meaning. This is a person who seemingly had everything and this past week took his life. Why? He's not a follower. And he didn't have faith in God. Faith in God is what brings life. Faith in God is what brings meaning. Faith in God is what brings purpose. If you want to be a follower... Have faith in God. And when you do, there will be plenty of fruit on the tree, not just leaves. Well, Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues. And he says something that is even a little bit more puzzling. But this is the continue of the instruction of what it looks like to have faith in God. Look at verse 23. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Now, we need to read this in context as well. I don't think this is a magic formula for doing amazing things. Jesus is not giving us a formula here for throwing mountains into the sea. He's recognizing here that having faith in God is often difficult. When we have faith in God, there's often mountains in our way that make it difficult to have faith in God. The people of Israel had significant mountains in their way that made it difficult for them to have faith in God. They were experiencing oppression under Roman rule. They, they were experiencing the apparent silence of God. These were mountains in the way of the people of Israel for having faith in God. The disciples... The disciples are soon going to be experiencing some mountains. Within the week, Jesus is going to be put up up on a cross to die. That is certainly a mountain that is going to be placed in their way that 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 is going to cause them to struggle having faith in God. And we have mountains in our life as well, don't we? There's things in our life that make it difficult to have faith in God. Some of you right now are experiencing, you're sick. Your experiences, you have a disease, and, you, and you're thinking to yourself, why? why? Why am I experiencing this disease? Why am I going through this? God, what are you doing? And it, it's a mountain. It's making it difficult for you to have faith in God. Some of you are lonely. God, I just, I just want one friend. Will you just give me one friend? I seem to be all alone. It's a mountain. It's a mountain that makes it difficult for you to have faith in God. How about financial struggles? 
the financial, why, why are we going through this? Why do we never have enough money? It's a mountain. And then there's, and in our lives, sometimes there's, there's, there's the apparent perceived silence of God. Why doesn't he speak to me? And it's a mountain that can be in our lives and can cause us to, 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 to doubt the faith that we have in God. And all of these things and others raise our doubts and our fears and their mountains which, which keep us from having faith in God. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I tell you, if you ask in faith, that mountain will be removed. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that the issue itself is going to be removed, but the issue in the fact that it causes a stumbling block to you having faith in God. Jesus says, stand up and ask in faith and I'm gonna take that away. And then he gets more specific. Look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now again, let's remember the context here. Jesus is continuing this same mountain theme. He is saying that there is a great mountain in the way to you and I having faith in God. And the great mountain here is pride. And that pride expresses itself in our unwillingness to forgive those who have wronged us. And it's, Jesus says here, this is a huge obstacle, but you have the power to remove the obstacle. What does it say? When you stand and pray, forgive those who have offended you. And you see, there is really only one thing that prevents us for, from forgiving those who have offended us. It's our pride. Because I know when you offend somebody else, when there is somebody in your life that you have offended, I know you want forgiveness and you want it quickly. I know when I've offended somebody, I want them to forgive me. But the thing is, is when the shoe is on the other foot and when somebody has offended us, when someone has hurt us, when someone has taken advantage of us, we hold on to that thing. And we don't want to forgive them. And whether it's direct or subtle, we want them to walk, to grovel, to crawl to us in forgiveness. But Jesus says that's a mountain. And that mountain is an obstacle to you having faith in God. That mountain is in your way of you becoming a follower to being devoted, committed, passionate. If there is someone in your life who you are unwilling to forgive, it is going to be very difficult for you to have faith in God. It is going to be very difficult for you to be a follower of Jesus. So Jesus says, when you stand and pray, forgive them so that your sins may be forgiven as well. So there are some of you here this morning, I know you want to be followers. And I know you have faith in God, but there's doubt creeping in. And one of the reasons that that doubt may be creeping in is because there is someone in your life who you need to forgive who you have not forgiven. And it is the mountain that is standing in your way from being fully committed, devoted, and passionate about being a follower of Jesus. Stand and pray 
and forgive that person. When we started, I asked you to ask yourself, am I a follower or am I just a fan? Have you ever noticed how sometimes it's a lot easier to be a follower of the Detroit Lions than it is to be of Jesus? Or maybe the Detroit Lions aren't your thing. There are a lot of things that compete for our attention, for our devotion, for our commitment, for our passion. Jesus desires that you follow him, that you be devoted to him, that you be committed to him, and that you be passionate no matter the cost, no matter what people say, no matter what people think, no matter what people do to you, Jesus wants you to follow him. Have faith in God. Don't, don't do what the people in the temple did. Don't, don't have faith in yourself. Don't have faith. Have faith in God. Because when you do, you receive the life that only Jesus can give. You can search, and you can search, and you can search. You are not going to find what you need until you have faith in God and follow Jesus.